Welcome to Season 6 of Business Book Talk. Every week, we have a business book author talk about their book and discover why they wrote it. The conversations are casual in tone, but we try and dig a bit deeper into the subject of the book and discover the author's background and their core ideas. I'm sure you'll like this week's book, so let's get started. Hey, everybody. It's Bob again. I've got a fantastic book, The Purpose is Profit. The truth about starting and building your own business. I've got Ed Skip McLaughlin here today, but we're going to be calling him Ed because, uh, well, let's find out about the skip. But before we get into that, Ed, you've got two co-writers. Just uh, let's talk a little bit about them. Sure, absolutely. Well, first, thanks so much, Bob, for having me on uh, your podcast. I'm excited to uh, have the honor of being here. And as far as the uh, co-authors, my first co-author is a woman by the name of Wynne Lidecker. The way Wynne got involved with this project, which is kind of exciting, is um, probably back about maybe almost 10 to 15 years ago, she had put me up for the Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year Award. And we were fortunate enough to have won it. When you go through that process, there's a series of interviews and actions and documentation and dialogue. I got to know Wynne. Uh, she also happens to live in my hometown. And uh, we really hit it off. And uh, the next thing you know, I had a challenge come up and I called Wynne and said, hey, Wynne, you know, there's a marketing challenge, and I think you might be the perfect person to help. She jumped right in, and sure enough, we had success number two. The marketing challenge was resolved. And then there was one final thing that was particularly interesting, I thought. When we sold our company at the end of uh, 2005, I knew Wynn was really strong in business planning and business writing. And uh we produced an offering memorandum with an investment banker, a typical process you would go through in selling a company. And I said to Wynn, could you review and edit the offering memorandum? And she said, you know, for sure that she would. And when we made our final presentation to a big company, we sold our company to Johnson Controls. At the end of our presentation in their boardroom, the chief financial officer literally called me over and said, uh, I want to tell you, I see a couple of hundred of these offering memorandums every year, and this was the best offering memorandum I'd ever read. So that, to me, crystallizes my relationship with Wynne Lidecker and why she was just the perfect and logical person to uh, co-author the book with me. And then my son, Paul McLaughlin, uh, he was just finishing business school. We had been working together for a couple of years and we had this unique opportunity where you're working with your child and we traveled the world on a global consulting assignment. We're investing in real estate and doing new projects. And uh, I said, Paul, do you want to join the team and share your insights so we can make sure the millennial voice is represented. And he jumped in with both feet. And that's how I got together with Wynne Lidecker and my son, Paul McLaughlin, as co-authors of the book. Hmm. You know, it, you know you, you, as I was listening to you there, it reminded me of that, that great saying, you know, get the right people on the bus and then get them in the right seat. And that is so critical to, to the success of an organization is finding your talent pool and then working with them. Don't be uh, like a greedy entrepreneur. It's like, no, it's my company. It has to be this way, blah, blah, blah. And, and actually having your passion and sharing it with other people. And, and if they respond in the same way, those are the golden people that you need to uh, work with and, and uh, you know, reward and thank and, and, and really help them grow and you grow into the business as it grows. So, you know, this is a little off what we were, or, you know, the book, but how important are the people that you bring in at the beginning of your business? Uh, well, it's funny. I, uh, uh, when I started my business, I had been working for a large real estate developer. The company was called Trammell Crow Company. And literally it was filled with Harvard MBAs. They specifically recruited Harvard MBAs. And I thought, wow, I'm going to start a company and I'm immediately going to 
recruit some very bright people that uh, graduated with advanced business degrees. Well, sure enough, Bob, every one of them turned me down. <laughs> they did not want to take the risk. Um, it was in 1991 when we formed the company. And if, if you dial the clock back, you may recall things were um, skittish relative to the economy. And folks didn't want to take that risk. And frankly, you know, truth be known, maybe they didn't necessarily believe in my vision. Um, and, and so ultimately what happened is I uh, had a young man, uh, my first partner, a gentleman by the name of Gus Palopoulos. He uh, had called on me and wanted to join Trammell Crow as an intern because he was desperate to get into the real estate business. He had gone... Uh, just completed his undergraduate. He was working as a waiter and he was just filled with enthusiasm, energy, and a willingness to pay any price. And uh, I turned to him after I was rejected by these much smarter folks. And uh, I said, Gus, will you, will you, you know, leave your waitering job and join me to start this business? And sure enough, he did. And he had a honest, a terrific work ethic, uh, a complete commitment to the vision. Um, he received, uh, frankly, 5% equity in the business on top of his salary. And uh, ultimately, his commitment to me and his investment resulted in him becoming a multimillionaire. And uh, that was my first partner. My second partner who joined uh, frankly, was my secretary's husband, who at the time was out of work. He had not uh, completed his college degree, but he was decent, honest, hardworking, uh, one of the finest individuals. Uh, his name is Tom Deaver. And uh, he stepped up to the plate and said, look, I'm with you. And uh, these two guys and myself started. I was kind of the rainmaker and the strategy guy, I did also bootstrap the business. Gus was the service and execution guy. And Tom was the back room running the financials and making sure. And it just worked beautifully. And one of the lessons I learned is, yes, it is wonderful to have advanced degrees from Harvard and other great schools, but it is not necessary if you have the right chemistry, the right work ethic, and the kind of people that are willing to roll up their sleeves and do whatever it takes to succeed. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm a real believer in if you want to start an entrepreneurial um, venture, you got to find other people that have the, the entrepreneurial bug. And literally, it is a disease. I mean, you, the only way you can get rid of it is, is trying to burn it out of your system by making lots and lots of companies. Um, and, and then you've got the, the people that have gone to school and, you know, fantastic that they've gone to school but a lot of that is about you know systems and theory and it's not about the entrepreneurial gutsy approach to doing business those type of people are incredibly important once you've established your business and it's more of an even keel and it's matured a little bit then you need people in that can do sequenced events con you know consistently and that's a very, very good time to have that type of uh, team put into place. Would you Would you agree? Exactly right on. Now, here we had a waiter and an unemployed guy who didn't have his degree, but they were willing to do anything at the beginning. But four years later, I had the opportunity to bring on those folks with the advanced degree. Uh, I, I had a gentleman by the name of Rick Bertese. He was a Dartmouth MBA, um, a, a real... Uh, strong, deep, creative thinker. And he led our business into areas. He became ultimately the second largest equity owner in the business. I had another gentleman by the name of Nick Wesley who did uh, have a degree from Harvard and MBA. And uh, he built our whole Western region operations and ultimately helped us globalize the business. Uh, had another guy from uh, uh, Notre Dame undergrad, Columbia, uh, urban planning degree, uh, helped us build our design and construction business. So you are 100% right. Those folks definitely played a role, but they came in after the business had lifted off. And it was kind of clear that uh, it was ready to 
step up into the next level. So their skills came in and they just put a turbocharger on the growth of our business. You know, um, creativity and, 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 um, and I'm not saying that creativity, oh, he's a good painter and boy, he can sing. Creativity is a, is a, is a special skill set to be able to look at any situation and then come out with, and I'm, I hate to use this one, an, an answer that's outside of the box because that is the definition of an entrepreneur. It's like they're just every day getting thrown against big walls and not getting upset about it and saying, well, you know, well, let's dig around this one. Oh, let's climb over this one. Let's disassemble this one and walk through the new door. That to me is what an entrepreneur does in the startup phase of a business. Then you kind of have the second phase we just talked about where things are rolling, you've got some nice revenue, you've got the cash flow figured out, and then you need a stewardship. So you get people in that are solid and, and have a specific skill set that you can plug into where you need it as you step back into different positions. But after that, what happens? Frankly, what happened to us is we evolved our service model. In other words, we started to change the business model uh, so that we could scale the business. And the way we did that is we made a commitment to build geographic profit centers, product line profit centers, and we made all of our new business people profit centers. So we were very comfortable with that idea. And to me, that really helped us continue hyper growth in our business. We grew at a compounded annual rate of 40% over the 15 year life of the company. Now, of course, in the early years, you grow at, you know, a thousand percent per year. Um, but getting to 40% compounded growth in the, in the outer years, um, you had to have something. And the key thing that we clued into was this concept of if we pay people based on profit, not on revenue, and we give them control in structuring our proposals so they would understand, okay, this much comes in in revenue, this much expense. If I have an interest in the financial outcome, the profit, uh, then all of a sudden, everybody, as we're scaling the business on a literally on a global basis, becomes concerned about making profit. And if they're making profit, you can bet the business is making profit. And ultimately, that's what led to uh, we never borrowed a dime. Uh, we grew all of we grew the company on uh, current cash flow and had a huge. Uh, cash savings pool um, in the business, uh, ultimately when we sold it. Um, uh, so we, we grew it to about 300 folks in about 40 offices, but never borrowed a dime. And, and it, a lot of it had to do with the way in which we chose to scale, which was everything would be built off a profit center model, whether it's new business, whether it's geographic expansion or a product line, everybody was concerned about making a profit, which kind of gets back to the book, the purpose is profit. Um, that was a real sensitivity point. We were with folks that did not want to spend, you know, their time building something without ensuring there was going to be a successful outcome so that they could underwrite and fulfill their own personal dreams, whether it was uh, paying for their kids' education or uh, uh, investing in uh, a, a vacation home or whatever the case might be. Uh, so this whole concept of uh, making a profit really paid big dividends for our business. Well, it's it's almost like um, you structured in a way that it was it was continuously bootstrapped, but because that's what bootstrap level is. It's like okay, we're going to do X, but. We have to get our money back because if we don't, we don't have any money left. So everybody has to scrimp and save in every department. I mean, that's a very lean way of running a business. And these days, it seems to be very, very popular to run a business that way. Uh, do you think that you were perpetually in bootstrap mode or did you evolve slightly out of that? 
Well, I mean, the one thing I can say is we really truly never did borrow anything. We did truly grow at about 40%. Uh, we had a lot of cash on our balance sheet, even to a point where literally we would be competing for contracts with large corporations. It was a B2B business. And um, we would come in with our value proposition. I uh, remember specifically Computer Science Corporation, big company. We wanted to take over uh, and become their partner for managing all of their real estate assets. And we were pitching the chief financial officer and um, we came in and said, you know, we'll write you a million dollar check up front. We told him our value proposition would drive 35 million in savings. He said, well, how do I know that to be true? And we said, because we had a cash trove, we said, we'll write you a million dollars up front. And sure enough, he took it and we won the business. And we made that offer probably no less than 50 times in the life of our company. And what's interesting is the chief financial officer of Computer Science Corporation was the only one who took, uh, took us up on the offer. Because in exchange for the offer, we said, we're going to create $35 million in savings. We'll give you a million up front, but we want a 10% share in those savings. And, uh, uh, but I think what happened is uh, the folks that we made that presentation to, they were like, wow, if these guys are willing to write a million dollar check up front, they must mean what they say. We'd rather keep our savings then than pay it, you know, pay them a 10% share. We'll just pay them, you know, frankly, on a cost plus basis or um, a cost per square foot or whatever the case might be. Mm. Yeah, it isn't. It's very interesting that the, the psychology of a close, where you can offer something to somebody, you say, or you can do this with a percentage, and it's it blows my mind. Sometimes I've been paid so much more because people think, no, 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 we're going to make all this money. It's going to be super, super successful. So you know, here's a huge wad of money up front, and then we'll make the profit down the road. Um, let's get back to the book. Sure. Do you think, you know, for all the people listening, uh, <laughs> um, how should we attack this book? You know, is, is it a book you can skip around in or are you going to get much better value? Because, you know, it's got sections. And, and I must admit, guys, this is one of the, the most interesting um, content pages. It basically, each chapter has a synopsis. It's brilliant. I wish more books did this. But uh, other than reading the contents and then closing the book, say, yeah, that was good. Uh how should people attack the book? Should they, you know, should they go from the beginning to the end, or can they jump around to a section they think is going to be most relevant to them? Okay, um, great question. Uh, the way we wrote it, we mixed a storyline with uh, content on how to build and run a business. We really focused on this whole concept of truth. In other words, let's give them the good, the bad, and the ugly. Because uh, we had some ugly stuff, too. Matter of fact, there's a whole chapter dedicated to a hard lesson, which was a huge failure. And I, I can talk about that momentarily. But to answer your question, what would you, how would you enjoy the book? And I would say this. If you're an aspiring entrepreneur and you want to get into kind of a combination of uh, a story with the the way to build, launch, plan, scale a business and kind of go through it, you would read it start to finish. If you're, um, you've already lifted your business off and you're dealing with certain issues, whether it's uh, securing additional capital to uh, fund the business and expand the business, you might focus in on a couple of different chapters. If you're particularly interested in uh, building your sales force, there's a chapter entitled Sales as a Contact Sport, and it outlines absolutely everything you would need uh, to build your sales organization. Um, if you're at the branding phase, there's a chapter called Entrepreneurial Branding. Um, if you're very busy and you just want to get to the meat of the matter, there's a chapter called The Ten Commandments of Startup Profit, and it outlines the 10 things that, frankly, I believe what all entrepreneurs need to consider and plan for as they build and launch their business. And I'm, I'm a big believer in giving back 
but I'm also a big believer if you're going to put the three major assets of your life on the line, which are your time, your money, and your reputation, you have to invest in something where you believe you're going to get a return and you need to do everything uh, to accomplish that. Uh, then once you have uh, surplus or excess, then you're in a position, as far as I see it, to give back and contribute to society and enrich other people's lives. But your first order of business, if you've launched a business, you're hiring other people, you got to keep in mind those people that are joining you, they have visions, dreams, plans, and family obligations that they have to serve. And if they're going to stay with you, they have to know that they're part of something that is sustainable and that will fulfill their dreams and their plans. Um, so that that's, that's I guess, a big summary on the book. <laughs> well, that's definitely a passionate one for sure. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, you know, I've started up lots of businesses, and I think the the critical one is uh, entrepreneurs that that say, "Yeah, I'm going to start my bakery," or "Gosh, I'm going to start my truck delivery service," and then they go out and they buy the most expensive truck, or the you know they get a nice space, and then they spend a ton of money on the decoration and the most up to date fridge, and did nothing but the best, and at the end of it, they have no money, they have no cash flow. Does building a business rely on being a little bit frugal at the beginning and really reining in and controlling your cash flow to a ridiculous degree so you can really, you know, control your growth? Oh, absolutely. I mean, one of the Ten Commandments is um, is, is maintain airtight control over your money. And you've got to be very thoughtful and very judicious, you know, about how you spend and literally, I think every decision an entrepreneur makes need to, needs to factor how are they going to make a profit on every dollar that they're spending. When we started our business, uh, we were so concerned. I, I, the first thing I did, my wife and I moved out of the house we were in. We were in a rental house. We moved into uh, a, a very small house. It was probably one-third the size. We had... Uh, two young children and uh, another baby on the way. And we lived in what we called the house behind the house. Uh, and, uh, and that's exactly the way we ran our personal life and the way we ran the business life. When we found our first operating location, we were like, okay, um, what's the cheapest way we can uh, get an address to run our business? And um, coming from the real estate business, the cheapest way to do that is you find uh, a, a, a sublease uh, that has probably about a year and a half to two years remaining on either a five-year lease or a 10-year lease, because that's when really you should be able to negotiate down as far as 25% of the face value. So if the face value of the lease is... Um, for a particular year is uh, $30,000, you should probably be able to negotiate a deal where you're paying $7,500. Why? Because whoever moves in there with 15 months uh, to 24 months left, uh, they have to be in a position to prepare to move their business less than a year later. And the uh, sub-landlord understands and knows that. And in our case, we got a great deal. We got 25 cents on a dollar. Uh, the person whom we sublet it from, uh, at the time we did not know this, uh, was the past uh, chairman of General Electric Credit. And, and the way we found out that, it was a small lease. It was about uh, 1,500 feet. We toured the space, and there's a picture of uh, this gentleman on the cover of Time magazine. And we said, is that you? And his name was John Stanger. And you can kind of look that up. And we said, uh, he said, you know what? I like you guys. Here's the keys. You can have all the furniture. You can have the phones. You can have all the office equipment. Some of it was dated. And he said, I'm, I'm just going to walk away. And we said, well, John, before you do, uh, can you give us any advice? And he said, all I can tell you is when I was at General Electric Credit, I had a wonderful career and I grew to run the business. Um, 
but every second of my time was accounted for. And he said, when I left and started Stanger Miller, uh, a boutique investment firm, he said, I made more money, I had more fun, and I had more freedom than I had in all my prior years. I got three pieces of advice for you. Do it, do it, do it. And we, we, we named a chapter after John Stanger, and his advice was just perfect for every entrepreneur. If you have the dream, do it, do it, do it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the people don't know what freedom is until they're working seven days a week, 24 hours a day. <laughs> That's right. You know, people say, but, but Bobby works so much. He says, yeah, but it's not work. It's fun. It's that's like right. play day every day, and uh, it's and that's what I meant about entrepreneurial being addictive. You know, you, you get in the, the the young you are when you you jump into the entrepreneurial uh, venture, uh, and you really get the idea of what you get from being entrepreneurial. That that there's there, you're unemployable for the rest of your life, really, because your attitude will suck. When you're in the business, either you'll try and take over the business or your department, you'll try and run your department like you're entrepreneurial and piss off your boss, or you'll say, you know what, this is that's not for me, guys, sorry, and go. So for all the entrepreneurs, this is the biggest tip I can give you, all the entrepreneurs out there, instead of deciding to, you know, do it, do it, do it, definitely do it, but think strategically and figure out a way so when you exit the company you work with, Make them your first client because that is a great way to bootstrap your business. Would you agree? Absolutely would agree. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, my first two pre-orders were existing customers. Now, that might sound a little sketchy. The <laughs> fact the fact is um, uh, these folks were uh, very, very committed to me. I did not have a non-compete agreement, and they said, um, Ed, we want to go with you. And, and, and they, they just said, we know the kind of guy you are. We know you'll fulfill, you know, your commitments and you'll do things right in a first class manner. And uh, uh, frankly, those two companies, uh, American Express Financial Advisors, which has since become Ameriprise. Um, and then the other company is uh, the largest dental distributor in the United States. It's called Patterson Dental Company. And those were the first two clients for our business. They gave me verbal pre-orders six months before we launched. And I'll remember uh, right after we launched, I was nervous. You know, I thought these guys are good guys. We've been together for a long time. I think I think I can count on them. And sure enough, both of them stepped up and uh, uh, it resulted in us uh, getting to positive cash flow within four months. And um, as it related to the real estate service business, we never looked back. Hmm. You know, you mentioned something very interesting there. You know, you had a good relationship with these people. They wanted to work with you, not the product. They wanted to work with you. That's about personal branding. That's how powerful and important your personal brand is. Do you feel that a lot of entrepreneurs, or let's face it, basically everybody out there, doesn't understand that how people perceive them and how they want to do business with them is a brand thing and not, uh, uh, or it should be looked at like a brand because it's a thing that you evolve and you take care of and it has value compared to, ah, I'm a nice guy. That's why people want to do business. I think, I think it starts with a personal brand. Uh, I, I, honestly, the, the most exciting thing that I think uh, out there is there's so many people uh, in corporate positions that have cultivated and built wonderful relationships, the, the kind of relationships where, frankly, their customer base or some subset of their customer base would probably go with them wherever they went, whether it was uh, to another company or building their own company. And I also feel like those same people have new breakthrough ideas about better ways to do things than they're currently being done. And to me, those folks, they have pre-existing relationship trust, they have new ideas, and and they probably have the financial resources to bootstrap a new enterprise, which is really my story, you know? So um, I couldn't agree more. Personal branding is is very, very key. And then, then, it, then it evolves into, um, 
really institutional branding as you scale your business. Yeah, yeah, it, it's it's transferring that trust and uh, well, it's quite frankly love for doing business with that particular person into the whole entity where it's hundreds or sometimes thousands of people that understand and become that brand so the trust uh, can transfer to a logo or to a, a, a word mark and not the uh, de facto leader. Exactly, exactly. I want to talk to you a little bit about, you know, when you had those uh, those connections and they say they were going to come in, they, uh, they were going to uh, invest in your business, and then they did. The, the power of the trust, the, the ability to trust somebody is brutally difficult. I mean, you could be saying, oh, I'm really excited about this, but in the back of your head, are they going to do it? Are they going to do it? Are they going to do it? And it's got to be something you've got to deal to uh, learn to live with as an entrepreneur. How do you deal with that, uh, teaching yourself to trust that it's worth trusting these people until the deal actually goes through? Because it's so tough. Until that check comes through and clears, you never really, really trust that they're actually going to do what they're going to do. Yeah, no, they, that's the stomach that the entrepreneur has to have the stomach to start up working with a verbal. Uh, ideally, if you can get a written contract, that's better. We did not have a written contract from either party until after we started the business. I kind of felt in my particular instance, I needed to, um, I was leaving one firm and I was starting my own and I kind of felt like I would be at cross purposes if I started signing contracts with people while I was still uh, employed by uh, my prior employer. So I did not do that. I did let people know that I was going to leave and um, I asked for their support and um, and then we launched and sure enough, uh, we were scared, uh, we trusted and sure enough, they came through. Um, but you're right. I mean, uh, ultimately, uh, it was the moment of truth. Uh, I remember calling the guy, uh, frankly, six weeks and a gentleman by the name of Bill Scheller, and uh, he was with Patterson Dental. And I said, Bill, um, you know, will you be there for us? And and uh, we're ready to go. We've launched the business. Uh, we're ready to, you know, execute work for you. And he said, I'm there. He said, I'll be in uh, Stamford, Connecticut uh, next week, and we'll write up an early agreement to launch our business. And literally where I'm sitting right now, I framed that agreement. I have it right in front of me. And actually in the book is a copy of that original letter that he gave me um, outlining how we would work together. Because I wanted people to see those things. Uh, we tried to incorporate things in the book where we weren't just talking the talk, but where I could show readers, you know, here's what happened. I mean, we got a pre-order and here's the actual pre-order. And uh, I really tried hard to include images, pictures, diagrams of things that actually happened so that people could kind of see, oh, he's not just telling a story. This this really did happen. But anyway, to get back to your question, yeah, you got to you got to trust. And <laughs> and if they didn't and if they weren't there, I mean, that's what extra funding is all about. If uh, Bill Scheller didn't step up or, or the other gentleman, Kip Chaffee with American Express Financial Advisors, if he didn't step up, um, frankly, um, we would have to dip deeper into our startup funding. Uh, and But because they did, um, we immediately were doing work. We had cash flows and life was good. Yeah, well, it, it's it's critically important. I mean, I, I work with an amazing guy called John Twig. When we were in Thailand, he brought me on board to start up a magazine. And he said, Bob, it's going to be amazing. I just need you to create the thing. I've got all these people on board. I said, what do you mean you got all these people on board? It's all, I've been talking to my buddies. They own restaurants and this and that. They love the idea. You know, they're all in for full-page ads. I'm saying, oh, my God, that's amazing. I mean, that never happens. And, uh, you know, a lot of passion, a lot of belief. We started up and we made the first magazine, 100-page magazine, I mean, printing the old-fashioned way, 10,000 copies of a magazine sitting in the garage. John goes out and, and, and he says, hey, here's our prototype magazine. It's amazing, guys. I need 
your your commitment on these contracts for like a year or six months at least. And the guy said, ah, let's just wait for the next magazine and then we'll make a decision. Let's wait for So we basically went into ridiculous bootstrap mode. We had to back off on our original plans to, to, to grow it as rapidly as we wanted to. And then John hit the pavement and he made it happen. So just because you got a lot of passion, just because you got a lot of belief in something doesn't mean it's going to be an easy road. And sometimes it means that you're going to have to step away from that project and throw it away. So with that intro, Ed, did that ever happen to you? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, it's funny, Bob. Uh, When I started our service business, um, it was, um, you know, I had been doing real estate outsourcing for corporations. And I knew the client. I knew how to price. I knew, I, I effectively, to coin a phrase, had distinctive competence in that area. Uh, so it, it took off right away. I knew the clients, the, I got the pre-orders and so on. But I had this visionary business. And I thought, this business idea that I have is a change the world business idea. And basically, it was a magazine. It started out as a magazine. Did you know that, Bob? Oh, yeah, I'm cheating here because I read <laughs> okay. the book. But yeah, it's funny. I, I was like, oh, I, I, I remember this because when we were talking about trust and stuff, I said, oh, my God, I remember about John. This is a perfect segue. Absolutely perfect. Well, so anyway, we, we had this idea of uh, it was going to be kind of like the DuPont registry where you bring together buyers and sellers. And if the uh, listening audience knows the DuPont registry uh, would sell fancy automobiles and but you know buyers and sellers and then it got into uh, boats and frankly other things um what we needed and wanted to put something together around commercial real estate this was pre-internet so if you wanted to understand what opportunities existed for you uh, to invest in real estate in a foreign market or uh, you're in New York and you want to invest in real estate in California, you would have to fly there to understand what was on the ground. So the idea of uh, showing real estate assets without having to go there and giving facts and figures about them in a consolidated compendium didn't exist. And I just thought, oh my gosh, this is going to change the world. Uh, We're going to create a new marketplace. The centerpiece of the magazine was called the Commercial Property Exchange. It was all branded. We were going to be, New York Stock Exchange did stocks and bonds, but the Commercial Property Exchange was going to corner the market on real estate. I was totally committed to the idea. And um, I, I, since the service business took off, I said, we'll, we'll secure uh, all the profits from the service business we'll put into the magazine, which is exactly what we did. And um, the first lesson that I learned in that ultimate failure, uh, which ultimately three years in, we had to close the magazine down, was I had no competence in that field. The reason why the service real estate service business took off. I knew the clients. I knew the business model. I knew pricing. I knew the competition. I knew how to put something together. But my passion project, as I called it, the magazine, which was called the National Register of Commercial Real Estate, was uh, truly a passion project. And I just figured I can figure out how to make this succeed. Come hell or high water, it's going to work. And uh and, and frankly, it did not. And, and a large part of it had to do with distinctive competence. I had none. Uh, I didn't know the math behind the magazine. I wasn't smart enough to secure pre-orders for the magazine. Um, I didn't have my, uh, my business model ironed out to the level and extent that it needed. And even a step further, um, this is going to sound peculiar, but right down the way from us, um, a gentleman by the name of Dick Monroe, uh, who used to be chairman of Time Warner, uh, had just retired, and we knocked on his door and asked if we could meet with him. And he was very kind and free with his time. He was chairman emeritus, so he had time. And I sat down and said, well, you know, Dick, uh, I want to tell you about this business idea. 
this magazine we're going to come out with. And uh, he was very thoughtful and listened very well. And he said, well, Ed, uh, uh, do you know that it took us six years to make a profit with Sports Illustrated? Are you prepared to wait that long? And I was being cordial inside my brain. I was thinking, oh, we'll beat that just like we did on the real estate service. This will be no problem. But outside, I was like, well, Dick, yeah, thank you very much for your time and your advice. Well, I didn't listen to that advice, which was a huge mistake. Instead of getting outside funding for such a grand business, I tried to fund it from the profits of the real estate service business. And we took every dollar of profit for three years and burned through it until ultimately we had to shut that business down. So my takeaways, if you don't have distinctive competence, you really need to think about either how you're going to partner with distinctive competence in the field you're going into, uh, or you're going to develop it yourself before you start the business, or stick in an area where you have competence, where you know the customers, you know the business model, you know the pricing, the competition, and so on, you have a much higher probability of success in that area. Secondly, if you're going to get advice from advisors, super smart people like Dick Monroe, pay attention and listen. I threw his advice out. I didn't pay attention, and I got burned because of it. Um, uh, the, the story has a good news ending. When we shut the uh, magazine down, um, the real estate service business took off, ultimately became an Inc. 500 company, and we sold it to uh, a Fortune 100 company. So, um, but, but it was a hard lesson. It was particularly hard because the passion blinded me to the realities of what I was facing, which I think a lot of entrepreneurs face. Your feet leave the ground and you stop thinking about practical reality. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the funnest things, and, and uh, I am seriously addicted to it, is spending hours and hours and hours on the phone talking to your choir, your, your business partners and stuff. Oh, we can do this and that and yeah, and then we can do this and that. And it's all assumption-based BS. It's a lot <laughs> of fun. But then after those phone calls, you guys say, I just wasted three hours. I better hustle and work until 9 o'clock tonight doing my emails. But, I mean, you can do stuff like that. You've just got to also step off that train and get back to reality every now and again and do the due diligence. There's nothing wrong about dreaming. There's nothing wrong about not listening to everybody, but you also have to sit back and reassess. And that is why uh, when you're running a business, if you're a solopreneur, the most difficult thing to do is get advice you, you, you believe in. And one of the best ways to do that is to have a group of other business people that you can go to and, and every week just sit down and, and talk and they don't have to be the same business. It can be a bakery, a real estate person, a photographer, it doesn't matter. And just say, hey, you know, I was trying this and that. And go, are you crazy? I would never do that. Now, these guys are entrepreneurs. They're in the same fantasy boat that you're in. So listen to these guys. They will give you, you know, they'll ground you. And if you have a fantastic idea, they'll get really excited about it. So, you know, try that is a tool. Now, if you've got your own partner and you trust and, and, and it's a good fit, which is so rare, that is who you're going to sit and chat with. But every now and again, you got to say, you know, let's back it off a little bit. This has been fun, but, you know, let's bootstrap this idea instead of throwing everything at it. Ed, what else should people be doing? Well, I would just say that um, some people when they hear the title of our book, The Purpose is Profit, in some ways I think they think, oh my gosh, these guys are just about profit. The truth is that's not, that's not the case. But my advice to entrepreneurs, because this concept of 75% of new businesses fail within the first five years, that sickens my stomach. And I think, how did we come up with the title of our book? It was just this simple concept that if you're going to put your time, your money, and your reputation at risk, and you start a new venture, think right from the get-go. How are we going to make a profit? How can we monetize what we're doing? Now, there are some businesses that are the exception, like Facebook, where you know it's revolutionary disruption. You want to focus 100% on user growth. And if, if you have exponential user growth, I say go for it. But if it's incremental user growth, that's probably not going to be enough. So then, then I say 
focus on a niche area, an area where you know you can make a profit, where you have distinctive competence in the field, and then build from there. And uh, uh, that's really the rationale behind the name of the book. It's, it's, it's for entrepreneurs, and we want them to be thinking, okay, I'm going to spend my money, I'm going to spend my time, reputation, I'm going to bring other people on board. How are we going to make a profit? Uh, so that this is going to be worthwhile in the long run, and it's going to help us fulfill our dreams and the dreams of our employees' base. Absolutely, you know. It, and at the end of the day, I used to be like, I would have such a hard time giving an invoice to a client because I was I feel guilty about it, saying, "Geez, you know, maybe I should give them a big, bigger discount." That is not how you run your business. A business is a business, and it's about making money. You spend a, a tremendous amount of time. You put your money at risk. You deserve the money that's coming off of that invoice and every other invoice after that. Do not be a shy biller. And I, I think a lot of entrepreneurs are at the very beginning. They just don't – maybe here in Canada it, 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 where it's too polite to invoice people. I wanted to ask you, Ed. When you you know you're a smart guy, you you've been doing this a long time. You're taking all this knowledge, you're you're writing down notes, and then you're making a book out of it. When you were writing the book, what was your aha moment where something you knew was true really became a rock solid belief because it was like, oh my gosh, this is actually true. Well, probably the the aha moment. Uh, <laughs> This may not be exactly on point, but it is very, very truthful here, is um, I had a goal to write the book. Well, actually, when I sold my business, I had a good friend come up to me and say, someone whom I admired and said, oh, you should, you should get into academia. You have so much to offer. And I just could not see myself in a full-time academic role. Uh, I... I uh, but I, I, I wanted to boil all of my knowledge down, uh, particularly in the whole world of uh, starting new businesses, and uh, really put it down into a writing, uh, something that I could kind of give to the world. Uh, and um, uh, so we started on that, on that venture, and I was excited. You know, I thought, oh, this is great. You know, we're achieving uh, a goal. Uh, reducing to writing everything we know about the truth about building a business. Well, as the ship left the harbor, I started to realize, and one of my aha moments is, um, wow, you can't just sit quietly uh, with your co-authors and write this book. You've got to build a brand while you're writing the book. Um, so, all of a sudden, what seemed like, okay, we'll just write this book. It's going to be great. Then over here, we realized, hey, if we don't cultivate an audience, a follower base, a tribe, if you will, uh, and start to use all the new mechanisms that exist to us, whether it be Facebook, LinkedIn, Google AdWords, uh, all the different podcasts, communicating to the outside world, letting the world know that your offering exists. Uh, so what started out as a challenge of writing a book, then all of a sudden it became the challenge of building a brand and a following. And then ultimately it, it, it was the realization that, heck, this whole thing is like starting a business. So my breakthrough moment is um, I went from uh, starting businesses to writing a book to realize that writing a book, if you're really going to be successful, You've got to treat it like a startup in its in and of itself. Yeah, that's a big shocker for a lot of writers that they write the book and then realize, oh, hang on, it's yet another product that I have to promote and sell and advertise. Yeah, hello, <laughs> <laughs> like it's everything true. else. It's true. Um, so, for a takeaway bonus question, I wanted to ask. Uh, you know, you were incredibly lucky that you were able to to have your son involved in the business and and. Uh, you know, be able to grow a business with, with a family member, which is a very rare thing. Um, so I wanted to ask you, what do you think your son's aha moment was? I think what his aha moment was, was he started to understand me. Because if you think about it, our life up until that point, mine and his, was personal. It was at home, at school. It was, uh, he did not 
see me, work with me in a high-pressure business situation. And I think he started to empathize and understand with some of my behavior patterns, which probably weren't always the best. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, I've been there. (laughs) But I think he really, his aha moment probably was like, wow, now I understand, you know, what my dad was up against and uh, maybe why he behaved the way he did at certain times. In other words, sometimes I would take challenges from work instead of compartmentalizing it, I would bring it home and it would infect uh, my behavior at home. Not, not always, but but sometimes being very honest. Uh, and I think he just realized, yeah, that probably would have happened to me too. Um, and, uh, and, and it made him have a more mature look at our relationship. And uh, gosh, I got to tell you, I wouldn't trade it for anything. Uh, it was a wonderful experience. And um, I, I think he feels the same way. And um, so that's, that, that would be my answer. Yeah, it, it's uh, really, it is a truly rare thing. I, I have two wonderful daughters, and, and one day, fingers crossed, uh, they're going to kick me out of my position and, and take over my business. But you know what? That's their decision. They have to, you know, I, you can't force it on them and say, oh, now you've got to run the business, which, you know, you, you think, well, that never happens. And it happens all the time. With, with with successful entrepreneurs that have large businesses, they basically go up to one of their siblings and say, hey, you know, I've been growing this business. I want to retire. Now it's yours. If they don't like it or they don't want to do that, that's a horrible thing to do to your children. So if you're thinking, yeah, I'm going to build a business and I'm going to give it to my son. It's going to be amazing. Or I'm going to build a business. I'm going to give it to my daughter or my wife or whoever. That's a big gift. It might not be such a great gift. So let them decide like let them play in it a little bit see if they enjoy it because some people just aren't into it they're much more happy uh in a totally different position a less risky position and uh that would be my advice to to parents is like just because you're a successful entrepreneur does not mean that your children want that same life i couldn't agree more i couldn't agree more and uh it's funny uh one uh, of my children is um very, very committed to be an entrepreneur, and the other one is not so much. And the one that's committed to be an entrepreneur, I'll just throw this out there because uh, I don't know if you've seen this uh, YouTube video of uh, Jim Carrey, uh, the uh, comedian from Canada, making a uh, commencement address. And there's a 26-minute version and there's a three-minute version. And if you get a chance to see this, my son had me watch it, the three-minute version. And it crystallized for me uh, exactly why he wanted to become an entrepreneur. And ever since I've seen it, I recommend every entrepreneur should see it. It's not it's not comedy, which you would expect from Jim Carrey, but it is awesome messaging. You got to see it. It's fantastic. I've been chatting with Ed. You know, we never got to the skip part, but hey, you'll have to read the book, get to know Ed, and he'll tell you. The truth about starting... And building your own business is the subsection, and I must agree, this book is full of that type of advice. The purpose is profit. Ed, thanks for coming on the show. It was awesome. Thanks so much, Bob. I really appreciate it, and thanks to your audience. Uh, Hopefully, I've imparted something to help them. Ah, they love shows like this. Thanks for listening to the show. And don't forget to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Like us at Facebook forward slash Business Book Talk. Follow the host on Twitter at Bob Garlic. Visit the website businessbooktalk.com for show notes and lots of other great interviews. See you next week.